Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Aaron, hit me again with that. I just imagine casting a movie about your mom, and then you're like, oh, I'm going to cast the same person for my my attractive ex-wife, uh... And that's going to be my mom as well. I mean, I get what he's going for. It's just a little Freudian, you know? Yeah. Tarkovsky's on some serious Almodovar shit with that. Ooh. Them's the takes, everybody. Yeah. Anyway, that's the episode. That is the episode. Broke this one down. I wonder what song I'm going to put at the end. Um, Thanks for listening. No, you know what? Uh, Episodes of Trilove are sometimes like a mirror, the literal roundtable podcast where we talk Mm -hmm. about movies. We saw, or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can follow us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find me the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org. My name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison. I can speak. And you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm not ready for the army, although it might do me some good. I'm Harry. It's seven in the morning, and I am at Shiitake Harry on the, um, the Twitter. Uh, I'm Aaron. I also don't have a quote because it's seven in the morning. We're recording a podcast on Tarkovsky's mirror at seven in the morning. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, hopefully later in the day, more awake at RB, please. Andre Tarkovsky in the morning. And you can find uh, this is going to be our episode about mirror 1975 film by Andre Tarkovsky, one of two movies playing at the trial on uh, from his filmography. And I'm going to let Aaron take it away so that I can uh, probably fall asleep so for the next couple minutes. Yeah. <laughs> you sound like you are like literally like Snoopy on top of his doghouse uh, with like a blanket <laughs> right now. Uh, yeah. Uh, Mirror 1975, directed by Andre Tarkovsky. Uh, the film tells, uh, how do you sum this movie up? The film tells a story uh, that very loosely follows the story of Tarkovsky's own life. Uh, it shows many different periods and the life of a dying uh, poet named Alexei. Uh, the various periods include um, uh, his life growing up uh, on a farm pre-World War II, uh, mid-World War II, and also post-war. Uh, many of the scenes in the film illustrate Alexei's relationship with his mother, Maria, um, and how it changes over the many years uh, in the film. Um, there are also scenes from a, a first-person point of view, uh, post-World War II, in which he converses with his ex-wife, uh, Natalia, uh, specifically uh, concerning the manner in which they raised their son, Ignat. Um, the actors in the film also uh, kind of play many roles at the same time. For example, young Alexi is the same actor as Alexi's son, Ignat. Uh, Alexi's mother in flashbacks is played by the same actor that plays Natalia, uh, Alexi's ex-wife, and, and so on. Um, so Margarita Tarakova uh, is the actress who plays the young Maria uh, and Natalia as well uh, later on. And Ignat Danielsev uh, is the adolescent Alexi as well as Ignat uh, in kind of you know, later in the film. Um, so 
uh, there's other actors, but I think those are kind of the two ones that play the majority of the, the important roles here. Um, Tarkovsky had a, a hard time making Mirror, uh, specifically due to demands put on his filmmaking, not just by um, the government, uh, by Goskino, which was the USSR State Committee for Cinematography, which had a lot of requests for him to cut out certain scenes, which he just straight up didn't do. Um, but he also put a lot of uh, kind of uh, demands on himself, and, and he was a very harsh self-critic. Uh, kind of changing things uh, on the way. Uh, he, he took out a lot of scenes. He thought they were quite obvious. Um, reception for this film was actually quite divided on release, um, with many arguing that the film was kind of incomprehensible and, and maybe pretentious. Uh, Philip Yermash, who was the head of Goskino uh, at the time, said, and I quote, we have freedom of creativity in cinema, but not to this degree. Um, nevertheless, critical acclaim would increase with time, with Mir going on to be regarded as one of the greatest films of all time. I think the Kind of the usual thing that's quoted here is that Sight and Sound poll in 2012. Um, it was 19th in the critics poll and 9th in the director's poll for greatest films of all time. So it's a, gone on to be a, a quite um, kind of at least critically uh, well-regarded uh, film. Uh, Jason, what did you think? Also explain you know the film about? for me, please. Yeah. Um, so I'll take it back from the top because I think you're completely wrong. Uh, no, I, uh, I do not envy you. Uh, even in your role as uh, patented summarist, because yeah, it is, um, you know, I had personally an incredibly adversarial relationship to this movie for about the first hour and 10 minutes. I have a small brain and therefore was very thrown by the nonlinear structure. And when I say nonlinear structure, I don't mean Christopher Nolan nonlinear. I don't mean insert other filmmaker here nonlinear. I mean, like nothing resolves on a small scale. Um, you know, scenes just happen and then dream like they dissolve into another scene without, uh, you know, context or resolution or, um, you know, sort of a complete structure or arc. They're literally just, I mean, vignettes is probably the wrong word, but it's the only one that comes to mind. So I probably took the, like probably the worst approach you can to this movie. Uh, and because I was started to be thrown by how these pieces were fitting together, um, I just started listing out each scene uh, in a notes app to try and keep track of what was happening in the movie. And that's that, that will drive, fry your brain like an egg um, because there's no I mean, thematically, there's connections across the film. But scene to scene to scene, rarely is there um, much callback except to that main plot, like you said, of the dying poet and um, roughly the, uh, uh, you know, the dead slash dying soldier. Um, you know, there's that thin sort of connective tissue that isn't really, you know, forwarding a whole lot of the theme, but it's forwarding the story. Anyway, uh, you know, eventually I just had to accept that most scenes would just not resolve, um, not even strictly end. Uh, and sort of the point I ended up coming with, uh, coming up with, you know, not super deep, but uh, all that I could really glean from it um, on my own, I did not watch this with the fellas, it uh, should, be, should be noted, was that, um, you know, there's nothing sort of to be done with the past, with these stories, with, uh, you know, what Tarkovsky had experienced, um, you know, semi-autobiographical, as everyone's saying, uh, except to learn from it and, you know, share it in whatever way you can. You can't always really explain it. You can't always really contextualize it. You can't really say how it's changed you, but you can learn from it. It can be a tool to learn and teach from. Um, and uh, I, I don't know, it's, though that's the thesis I came up with, I'm having a hard time even putting together like, oh, this is the scene that exemplified that to me. It is, again, classically, like my first Tarkovsky film, the last one we discussed, The Sacrifice, uh, very much just like the movie I was watching and the movie I just did watch are two different things for me, two different experiences, you know, sort of one thing as a whole and one thing as an in-progress, like a series of scenes that I'm watching. 
Um, so I'm really excited to uh, dive in and figure out what it, uh, not necessarily what it means, but how it came together for the rest of you. Um, but I will let uh, Cody take it away with his thoughts at the seven minute 25 mark. Wow. Very specific. Um, thank you so much, Jason. Uh, I guess to just briefly characterize my quote unquote history with Tarkovsky. Um, I was not here last week to uh, expand upon that, but I think the fellas did a pretty good job in retrospect. Um, But I I watched Solaris and Stalker on separate occasions about four or five years ago. And those were both pretty formative film experiences for me. Uh, And then I saw the sacrifice last week. Um, Couldn't be here for the, the great conversation that the fine fellas here had about it, but that was not uh, necessarily a, a formative viewing experience, but it was all in all a good and useful one. I think um, I don't uh, I don't believe I was quite prepared for mirror. Um, may that may or may not be a theme <laughs> throughout this this episode. Uh, and Harry and I are coming off of seeing it maybe like ten or so hours ago. So um, my thoughts and or our thoughts may they may or may not reflect that fact for whatever that's worth. Uh, it's a hard film to sort of put into a box as it's been alluded to. And therefore talking about it, I hope will come as sort of a fun challenge. And I feel that uh, is somewhat validated by the fact that the letterboxed people that fucking love this movie don't have a ton to say about what specifically makes it great. <laughs> um, shout outs. Um, I do not claim to have any answers get, on that. Get all of their asses. Cody. I'm also really like the thousands of them go through the top letterbox There's reviews of any, of any movie you like, consider art and it's all just like either recaps of what happened in the movie one sentence pithy summaries or like memes this lady was hot i wish she would peg me yeah right dude (laughs) there's not even those for this fit like there's no joke there's like one one line joke review for this movie everybody else is just like it's really beautiful i don't know what i just watched Uh, five stars five stars and a like yeah (laughs) anyway um didn't mean to derail you cody no, no, that's okay. Actually, I, there are two. I cannot shout out specific users, um, nor do I really want to. Um, I'll keep them anonymous. But the the two entries that sort of stood out to me, one was like a three and a half star review from somebody who was like, name a more iconic duo, Tarkovsky and me falling asleep. <laughs> uh, uh, and then another one, it was basically just calling out what I just did. It was like, of all the people on Letterboxd, nobody here who loves this movie is really able to say uh what makes it so good? Um, so we, <laughs> I don't know if we'll be those people to make that, uh, to change those tides today. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I do think the, I guess what I do have to kind of kick it off, the, the specific methodology through which we're presented with these various images, I think that's fascinating, even if I didn't always love what I was seeing. And there are a few ideas that kind of struck me that made what I was watching make a little more sense. And maybe that's like as good of a place as any for like me to get started. And I'll try to summarize those like kind of succinctly, but one of those things was the, the poetry that was being read as narration alongside the memory sequences. Um, there's more than enough, I think baked into those readings, those poetry readings so that even if like an entire stanza of a poem doesn't necessarily contextualize the image we're seeing any given snippet, Uh, like snippet may reach out and and scratch a certain something that's, you know, specific to the viewer. It might unlock a little something for me. One such line was spoken sometime in the first half hour uh, ish. And it went, 
you transformed our mundane human language. Uh, I can't really articulate why that stood out to me, but I ended up holding onto that as I watched um, kind of the rest of the movie and, and see the rest of these images and characters unfold and communicate themselves in sort of unusual fashions. And that in its own way kind of smoothed some of the edges of, of my viewing experience. Maybe y'all here and maybe other folks who watched this movie engaged with those durations similarly, or maybe not. Um, but the other big idea that struck me uh, or stuck with me was the the frequent references uh, made by characters to things like deja vu, getting used to having the or uh, like having the same dreams over and over, and a sort of uh, a fluctuating memory permanence. I'll say uh, I'm thinking a lot here about last year at Marionbad. There's some very Ooh. similar energy. Yeah, uh, shoutouts. Alexi's memories and history are not particularly glamorous through and through and they may not necessarily be 100% honest but in a way the fact that those memories exist at all is perhaps what's most important even if that's like a very hollow consolation uh, but also I'm still uh, I, the thing I like saying I'm still very much digesting <laughs> this movie and I'm looking forward to working through it with you guys uh, this restoration looks pretty great shout out to the Trilon for showing it let's restore more films TBH uh, but let's also maybe look at what I have in my backpack uh, check it out it's a grenade uh tell you what i'm just gonna casually like roll over to y'all and gently lob this in harry's general direction so i guess harry look out below yeah yeah and i i'm gonna catch it and then lay down on it and then my head is going to start pulsing like a heartbeat uh from That's the bald right. spot atop that my happens head. that happens every single time that you think about what to say on the podcast though so that's true <laughs> and pretty much always in general. Also, I'm sort of a keyed up guy. Um, yeah, thanks, Cody. I think that Jason and Cody, you contextualized this movie very well. Um, also, Aaron, I thought that was a really great summary. Um, I would just like to add, like, there are a few ways into this this movie, I think, that are pretty important contextualizing. Like, for instance, um, the the poetry read throughout this movie is was actually written by Tarkovsky's father, um, I don't believe it was written for the film. I believe that his father was just literally a poet and he is reciting um, the poetry his father wrote. Um, Tarkovsky's actual mother is also in this movie as the older version of Maria. Um, I, I honestly think that kind of gives you um, a lot to like sort of start this movie with. Like, I wish I had known it going in, right? It, I think it would have helped me quite a bit in the sort of autobiographical sense of what this movie is trying to accomplish. Um I just read this book and I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, so you'll have to forgive me, but it reminded me a lot of a hundred years of solitude in some ways, in the sense that like, I think that on a very broad level, what this movie is trying to do is reframe and recontextualize the human experience um, to demonstrate how our perception of aging and time and linearity um, it sort of blinds us from what we really are and what history really is. Um, it also reminded me a lot of the Nietzschean concept of eternal uh, recurrence, which is something that Tarkovsky talked a lot about in The Sacrifice. Um, and so I had been thinking about those things and frankly, probably brought more to this movie than I should have. And so my um, my own sort of reading on it may not be necessarily a hundred percent textual, right? Um, not that anything ever is. That's also kind of what this movie is about, right? In an interesting way. Um, but basically I think that Tarkovsky is setting out here to sort of reframe our understanding of what humanity is in this sort of like cyclical sense, demonstrating that, 
Um, if we did have the ability to look backward and forward in time, like uh, Billy Pilgrim in Slaughterhouse Five, we would see that uh, we sort of occur and reoccur through time to the point where there's sort of the self is an illusion, uh, or not necessarily that the self is an illusion, but the, the self is something that has always been and is recurring, and that our relationships with one another are things that have always been. Um, and that even the sort of like macro historical events like um, the Sino-Soviet uh, um, conflict and um, World War II and the dropping of the atomic bomb, those are things that are always occurring and that they're a weight that sit on people um, and that have a real psychic sort of presence in our lives constantly. Um, I think that he demonstrates this by... Uh, this very unusual and, and fascinating framing mechanism where there are sort of nested memories happening here, right? Like Jason, I think that what you said about following the journey of this movie is actually really insightful and fascinating because it it's very specifically like one scene will transition to another when a character brings up a memory that they had and then we will enter that memory. And that happens a couple of different times within memories themselves, right? And so there are times in this movie when we are watching a memory within a memory. Um, I can think of at least one example of that. I'm sure there are more. Um, like I said, I, I don't claim to know this movie extremely well. Um, I, there are several scenes that I can't sort of parse very well. Um, I'm thinking of particularly the doctor scene at the very beginning. I'm not sure what what relation that has to the rest of the movie. Um, the very first scene where the kid watches uh, the speech impediment therapy on television right before the title drop. Um, I feel like that might have some sort of un like symbolic bearing on how our minds define our realities, but that's sort of a um, very much a punt, right? Um, much as a lot of what I'm saying is a punt, but I, I basically think that like, this is Tarkovsky's very personal way of thinking through like the ways in which who he thinks he is may actually be defined by, um, by things that he can't understand and that are outside of his control. And that, that is true of all of humanity that we aren't really like, we aren't really ourselves. We aren't really fixed in history and in time, the way we think we are. Um, we, we have some like, there are some cyclical um, elements of who we are. Like we are, are our parents, right? We are our histories. We are sort of like all of these things happening at once. And it makes, I think that the, the reference to mirror, right? Is this idea that like in the face of that, in the face of this sort of like illusionary understanding of self versus um, are under like what we actually are and how we're actually defined and how we actually perceive um, language and perception. Um, everything around us is a reflection of, of ourselves, of uh, each other. And I think that the whole deja vu thing is sort of a reference to the, the idea that like, that is sort of a recurrent um, and, and maybe even sort of like elemental um product of being a human is this idea that you've seen it all before, that this is something that has happened to you before. And that is actually something that is sort of internal. Right. Um, but I could be wrong about all of this, right? Because this is a very difficult <laughs> movie to grasp. 
frankly. Um, I, I think it's fascinating. I would never rate it. I don't know how I would rate it. I can't even say whether I enjoyed it, right? It's just sort of... Um, it's just sort of uh, something to grapple with, I think. And so it, I'm, I'm glad that we get to talk about it this way, at least. And now let's see if I have a good transition. Um, I am slowly floating up in the mm-hmm. air in, in sort of a sexy way mm-hmm. and gesturing at Aaron. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks, Harry. Uh, come, come back down, bud. Uh, I don't know. That's I really caught that badly. Uh, look, I, uh, I like the movie a lot. I like Mir quite a bit. I think it is it is uh, excellent. Um, I had expectations going into this film. Um, I think kind of we all did just based on, well, one, we, we watched uh, The Sacrifice earlier this week and we recorded on it. Um, and I think we were like, wow, that that is a that's a hard film. Um, I think looking back, it's not, it's not a hard film, especially compared to this one, which is kind of on a on another level. Um but uh, so this is my second Tarkovsky film. Uh, I, I, quick reminder for those of you who may have not listened to last episode, I'm making an effort to watch all of Tarkovsky's films in 2021. Uh, it's pretty easy as he has seven of them. Uh, and so this is the second one uh, that I've watched. And I, I think it is just as the sacrifice is a kind of a weird first one. I think this is maybe a weird second one. Um, a lot of people call this his most challenging. Um, so yes, we will see what we will get um, from discussion here. Um, I, I luckily was was kind of able to, to watch this film uh, myself at home and then uh, was able to kind of rewatch it later that night while I worked on notes for the show. I think that this, this really kind of helped nail down a lot of the themes and visual motifs and kind of where things lined up. Um, you know, I, I do think that this is a film that unfortunately you probably need to like really watch more than once, probably more than two or three times even in order to, to really nail it down. But I do think that there is kind of a, a general feeling that Tarkovsky is trying to impose uh, on uh, the viewers, right? I don't, I don't think you're supposed to have everything nailed down, but I think there is kind of a, a general understanding um, that maybe kind of lives in the back of your head that you, you get while watching it, right? So kind of a, a few things I think that, um, you know, there, there is a difficulty to watching this due to a few different factors. I think one is that this is a film that is very personal, but it also references um, quite a bit in the history of, of Russia and the USSR, um, you know, there's a scene kind of mid film where young Ignat is, is reading a letter to a imaginary dream woman, uh, that is, is written by Pushkin and, you know, references the, the history, uh, uh you know, kind of of that empire and the history of, of art specifically and how it's like branched off from the rest of Europe. Um, I think that's pretty incomprehensible to me, probably to almost anyone who doesn't really understand, uh, you know, have a great understanding of that history, right? But I do think that even kind of small understandings can help. Um, I think that understanding the uh, relatively oppressive environment that journalists must have worked under, uh, under Stalin's government kind of pre-war and, and mid-war, um, I think that helps explain why Maria is so spooked uh, that she might have accidentally published something obscene in the paper, for example. Um, I think that that kind of paranoid, intense environment also helps explain why something that seems weird, such as as Lisa, her her friend at work, randomly blowing up later on in that scene. I think that helps explain why that happens. Right? Um, it helps explain why when she's taking a shower, why it's why it's so funny that the the water kind of cuts out. Right? What kind of um, resource limitations they had at the time. So there's a lot of like historical context that like weirdly kind of backs up this very personal film. Um, and a lot of that is going straight over my head. Um, but I, I do think that the overall impression 
that this film gives the viewer, I think is, is like weirdly um, solid and quite emotional, right? Even the, the final scene um, as kind of young Maria has a vision of old Maria uh, with, with her children kind of walking uh, through, you know, kind of the, the field. Um, and she, she's looking back at her, her house that she lives in. Um, and she's kind of having a vision of it kind of rotting in the future and, and, and kind of fading away slowly. Um, even if you don't like get that in the moment, like it's still so emotional for some reason, and it's kind of hard to pin down. Right. Um, but I, I do think the movie does work in that way. Right. Like, I think this is ultimately a movie um, about someone at the end of their life uh, or near the end of their life at the beginning of the film and then right at the end of their life at the end of the film. Um, coming to terms with, with their own past, right? Like not, not coming to terms with anybody in the present, uh, but coming to terms with their own conception, uh, and kind of, um, understanding of the past and how it affected them. I think that this movie kind of speaks to the way in which when we're, you know, kind of just like idly lying about on a Saturday or Sunday or something. And we, we think back to some of the embarrassing moments that we had in our childhood or the moments that kind of impacted us, how we may skip around from, from moment to moment um, and how we feel a certain sense of guilt and how that sense of guilt maybe starts to kind of like slowly fade away as you, you, you know, become more sure of who you are and you become more sure of like your own past and, and what it eventually led to. Um, so I think there's something like really poetic and, and wonderful happening in this film. Um, and yeah, I'm rambling, but I'm excited to see where we go, uh, from here. So yeah, I, Gary, what's up? Oh, I, Jason. No, I just want to, if I can cut in, um, Aaron, you said that it's like hard to parse and you didn't know if you could have a good read on some of the social political context. sounds like you had a much better <laughs> read on the social political context of that era of Russian history than I'm yeah. assume any of the rest of us did. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll say that, that, uh, that there, I, I took a lot of, uh, context for this film. There's a, a book called The Films of Andrei Tarkovsky, A Visual Fugue. It's by Vita T. Johnson and Graham Petrie. Uh, it, it is, uh, I just read the, the kind of the essay on Mir. Um, it is um, some context behind the film and how it was created and how it was received. And then it's just a literal straight chronological in the film, not in like time, uh, kind of recap of what happens in the film, right? Uh, oh, she talks to the doctor at the farm and then the farm burns down and then she washes her hair. Um, and it, so it's not like explaining the film to you, but I think that even kind of that small contextual understanding of like, you know, it's a, when he was first creating the film, for example, he wanted to have these kind of fictional scenes interspersed with documentary footage of an interview with his mother, like explaining Mm. stuff. Um, and he eventually decided not to do that because he thought it was too obvious. Right. And so if you like, once you understand that, it's like, okay, he's going for something much more, it's like cliche, but he is going for something more poetic here, right? He's, he's trying to make the back of your brain feel something that later you start to comprehend as you, you think about it later in time. And like, that's probably why he didn't go that route. Cause that is, that is much too upfront. There's even scenes, the scene where uh, Maria uh, kills the, the, the rooster or the chicken uh, and then looks straight at the camera. And it's like a very affecting shot. He even considered taking that out uh, because he thought that like, that was too obvious, right? He, he, he wants to subtly impart these feelings as opposed to kind of directly imparting them on the viewer. Um, yeah. If there's, yeah. if there's anything uh, that Tarkovsky could do to be, a little bit more parsable to me. It's to be less direct, less clear, um, less straightforward. So uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate yeah. that. Instinct. Um, Harry, I think you head up next. 
Uh, yeah, no, that's cool. Uh, Aaron, that was very helpful. Um, that helped me understand a lot of stuff. I think that particularly like thinking through as sort of like coinciding with the other developmental ideas of Alexi's life, the sort of pressure cooker that the USR must, um, the USSR must have been right. Like, I think that, that, um, like you had said, putting those juxtaposing the documentary footage, um, the war footage, the sort of like fear and uh, loathing that these characters experienced under the USSR um, and and even like contextualizing art itself under the USSR, which is a really fascinating, that's a really fascinating article that Alexei sort of reads aloud to that imaginary woman, right? It's about how like the needs for a Russian identity have created this this version of European art that is undeniably European and yet isolated from um, from Europe and isolated from itself in many ways. And sort of like there's, there's an ideal history of Russia and then there's the actual history of Russia. And those things sort of like have a, a frustrating, um, conflict with one another. Um, I think that, that there's a lot to read there. Um, that again, sort of like morphs the personal and the political and the macro historical together and demonstrates how all of those things are sort of like in alignment and, I think especially the framing that you brought up about Alexei's uh, looking back and reflecting on his life um, with and without guilt is really, um, really well said. Um, I, I definitely think that like, I agree with you that, that this is almost like it's an attempt to, to render sort of like a moment to moment psychological uh, emotional response to reflection rather than sort of like a real like chronological um breakdown right like the the emotional truths that live in these scenes and that live in the the grand narrative arc um that is the scenes juxtaposed and, and positioned next to each other that is the idea right and i think that to your point, Aaron, uh, that's actually quite successful, right? Because like you said, like I didn't necessarily understand the final scene, but I was affected by it, you know, and I, I wanted to know more. And maybe that's just me striving too hard the way I kind of tend to, uh, because I, I want to talk about this on the podcast, but, um, but I think that, that that's a really good way to read it, right? Is that like, it's sort of, this is a movie about the, the necessary, uh, narrativization of the human experience and Alexi sort of like trying to reconcile with what his life was as it ends and all of the necessary ways that we have to sort of like repackage and recontextualize and um, even contradict ourselves uh, in the retelling of our own life story and how those things get mixed up with emotion and, and history and even other people in, in other people's relationships that aren't ours, right? Like his, his father's relationship to his mother becomes his relationship to his ex-wife becomes his relationship to his, uh, you know, to his children. Um, all of these things sort of like they morph and they intermingle because they are not, um, strictly real because our imaginings or our recollections of, our relationships as foundational and formative as they are, are our own um, understandings of those things. Right. And every time, you know, there's like that one, uh, that one idea about how every time you reference a memory or every time you think of a memory, you're actually remembering your memory of that memory. Right. And so that's authorship. 
And I think that that even that sort of refers back to the sort of mirror idea, right? And especially in the sort of um, formalist meta-contextual way, um, that's what Tarkovsky is doing himself here, right? Like he is taking ownership of and authorship of his life in the form of this film, right? And and saying like, when I when I am constructing this film that is sort of purporting to show the life of this person that is that is somewhat me and somewhat not, this is also sort of like, this is a reflection of the process of human memory making or human self making, right? Is this way that we, we constantly contextualize and recontextualize our memories intermingled with history, intermingled with our relationships with our parents or our relationships with one another um, and our relationships with ourselves. And the byproduct of all of those different things becomes a sort of high level understanding of who we are that is so contingent upon and affected by so many different things that it is constantly sort of being repackaged and re given to us and, and um, vice versa also affecting the way that we see everything. Right. And, and so there's a very, I think there's a lot of depth to that idea. Um, I, I could be persuaded uh, in pretty much any direction, right? Because it's sort of such an amorphous uh, and slippery idea. But I really think that that like what this movie is attempting to do, um, at least to me, is sort of like reconstruct a um, maybe a, even a more personal uh, understanding of of how how a person is made or like what, what makes a, a, a life or a, a memory, right. A series of memories, um, maybe even more so than what I was saying at first about how, um, selfhood sort of dissolves in the face of a different understanding of time. Um, I, my, my view might be changing on that a little bit. Uh, well, yeah, I, I don't know if your view has to, I think there's a way for you to, to square that circle. Um, I mean, so, so Tarkovsky himself was kind of, um, interested in time and specifically cinema and, and how it kind of portrays time. I mean, the, the example would be his book sculpting in time, which is, I haven't read. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he kind of, um, the, the quote on Wikipedia, but also the quote that's pretty much every other place that talks about the book, uh, is the dominant, all power, all powerful factor of the film image is rhythm expressing the course of time within the frame. Right. I think that, that pretty, it clearly explains what he, he's trying to do with like the, the editing of this film and the, the sequencing of kind of uh, events. Um, but uh, to, to, to kind of talk about your, um, your idea of like mirrors, I think there are kind of a few different directions you can take. I mean, I think that even if you're not someone who has access to a bunch of books and Wikipedia and, and other articles and stuff about Tarkovsky, I think you, you'd probably understand that this movie is pretty autobiographical, even if you just saw it in a the theater. Right. Um, I think it, 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 it at least, feels that way, um, kind of inherently. Um, so in that manner, yeah, I think that this is, uh, you know, um, an artist kind of holding a mirror up to his own life and, and trying to, to, um, justify it or make sense of it, uh, to himself and to the audience. I think that, you know, the, there's an understandable question about how much Tarkovsky might've wanted, you know, his own personal context of his life. Like, you know, the, the fact that, that his father did leave his family, uh, kind of earlier in life, uh, the fact that Tarkovsky, a few years before this film came out, uh, would kind of leave his own family as well. He divorced his first wife and then he kind of remarried again that year. Um, I think that that provides a lot of context for this film. Uh, 
how much that's necessary or how much Tarkovsky would, would think that would be necessary. I guess I don't know, but I think it, it does help explain that there's a, a sense of mirrors in this film also kind of being the relationships between uh, each other. I think that's why Tarkovsky uses uh, the same actors multiple different times, right? Yeah. Um, you know, young, young uh, uh, Alexei, uh, you know, he, he's played by an actor um, and he, you know, goes through uh, all these events and he, he sees his father kind of leave during wartime and be absent for a number of years in his life. Later on, uh, Alexei kind of feels the same thing uh, with his kid, Ignat, as, uh, you know, he gets divorced from his ex-wife and he doesn't get to see uh, his son as much. And, and the comparison there but with absentee fatherism fatherhood absenteeism uh you know that's like a very obvious comparison right the same the same way with maria and natalia and um you know people people being equated um in our mind uh due to those kind of elements um as we think back on them uh i think that's that's very important right and the fear that we have of kind of imparting our same kind of um, issues onto, uh, you know, the people that we raise and the people that we interact with later in life based on our childhood. I think that's something being thought about here. Um, and lastly, I do think that there is, um, you know, the idea of a, a mirror as something that, um, reflects our, our own feelings, our own unacknowledged feelings back at us, right. As we stare into them. Um, I'm thinking specifically of the scene where Natalia, uh, not Natalia, Maria, uh, with young Alexei, uh, goes to a, a woman's house uh, in order to sell some jewelry, right? I think that this is another thing that historical context probably helps explain, right? This is mid-war. Uh, they're very clearly poor, right? There is a class difference between these these two groups of people, right? There is, um, you know, Maria and her, and her son, and they're very clearly selling whatever they can in order to get food. Alexi at that point looks pretty thin and frail. He doesn't look like he's doing well. Um, and there's this family that they, they talk with uh, that is very rich, that can afford to buy their jewelry, um, that has enough to eat, right? Uh, even offers to, to give them a chicken to take home. Um, and also has a kid who is very clearly given the space and the food and the care uh, that he needs in order to grow up in a safe environment, right? Which is why she feels sick. And she goes outside and she looks in the mirror and she is forced to acknowledge um, that, which I think the viewer kind of understands or maybe will understand after thinking about it for 20 hours. Um, <laughs> but she kind of understands in the moment um, that which is, has gone unacknowledged, I think. So, I, yeah, I, I this is all just a rambling to say that, like, first watch, like, the, the use of mirrors and the use of the term mirror in the title didn't quite hit me that hard, but like even going back, like and kind of half watching it a second time, like it really solidifies what this film is, is trying to do. Right. Like in the last example, you just said, this is just a real quick uh, addendum. It's like she, she gained a new understanding of herself um, through uh, this, this other person and their economic circumstances helped contextualize herself and maybe not even in a way she wanted to. Right. So like, that's, that's one way in which other people serve as mirrors is not just in the general reflective sense, but also in the sense that they give, they give you a new understanding and new, new dimensionality to yourself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think Aaron, despite you characterizing your own um, summary there as rambling, like, I think you are, getting at the movie on a level that I was trying to going in at that like granular pull examples, explain type. I think you actually are like, um, you know, elucidating that pretty well. Uh, I just think like 
you know, I just feel dumb saying something like, ooh, the past is a mirror because like the immediate read on this movie from just seeing the poster is exactly that is like you, you don't need to know what this movie is about to assume that like, oh, the real mirror is the past. It's not, you know, literal mirror. Like I'm just saying real small brain ship right now, but I think that's like the beauty of this movie ultimately. And I'm not going to pivot here, but I would like to, after Cody and Harry had a turn to go, um, is that like, it's saying something so with you like working with such simple clay as that core concept and just giving it so much body and life and like so many different, um, you know, angles of interpretation, I guess, so many surfaces of, uh, context and, and understanding with such complex tools, you know, like with this whole, that's like, a really you, great point, Jason, sorry, you dug, in, you dug into the whole concept of basically like, sure, you see yourself in the past in time, but you also see yourself literally in yourself and just imagining Tarkovsky making a work that was about seeing himself in himself and seeing himself in others through his own memory is like, again, it, it, to call it like a retrospective or autobiographical or, you know, even like a time travel type structure is to short shrift it. I think, um, as like genre convention, I don't think that it really is any of those things. It is something far more, um, I guess using like the movie itself is complex and challenging to watch, but that's because of the way that it's told, not necessarily what it's telling. And I think that is like, that's where I end up with this. Even after talking to everybody about it here is like, it's not, saying anything incredibly complex or wide ranging, just something deep, incredibly deep at like pulling from his own self and his own understanding of himself with like just the most, like you said, abstract, complex, uh, you know, confusing tools possible and sort of challenging and forcing somebody watching it to say, okay, work through this abstracted layer of meaning to get to like the deeper point. And, and, you know, that in itself, that, um, that, layer that abstraction is also kind of the point that it takes effort. It takes time. It, it's, it's a process to really understand oneself or anybody um, as they used to be, as they were through the past. So again, that's yeah. just color on top of what you were saying. Um, but uh, I just think like, though you characterize it as rambling and like maybe not getting to a point, I think you actually are like, you're understanding it at another level that I wasn't able to yet. So um, you can stay on mute. Don't accept. Thanks for that or anything. No, but, uh, that's, you you want to just do a quick victory lap? Yeah, just uh, just a- edit in like uh, cheering, maybe like applause of an audience, something like that. You know. Congratulations! 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 <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I believe the order is now Cody. Sure. Um, Jason, that most recent thing that you said, um, I mean, thinking about that and thinking about like 12 hours ago, your sort of warning to Harry and I of like not to get too like granular <laughs> about like the movie and specific scenes as we watch and, and, you know, maybe approach, approach it differently from that. And like thinking about the big sort of grand takeaway that those parts are building toward. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm I was very sympathetic to it then and it became very evident uh, uh like er- early-ish on while watching and like talking about it now like that that makes a whole lot of sense and I, I think you adding color to it um is incredibly appropriate uh a lot of the things that i'm about to say i think are more so just like i heard what the teacher said and now i'm reciting it back in a way that like kind of you know makes uh, you know it that makes sense to me to make sure i understand it but like um i i think if anything else mirror to me 
seems like a, a film arguing for like contextualizing and recontextualizing um, ourselves and our experiences, uh, which happens to be shit that I'm, uh, I gravitate toward in general with like movies and art and life and things. So I I think this maybe hits uh, a little, a little closer to my personal mark than I originally sort of anticipated it would. Um, The, the intercut documentary footage that we get throughout, um, you know, especially those sorts of things of like wartime happenings, calls out to me as like, you know, no matter the individual, we're always sort of staring threats of war and nuclear conflict and famine and climate change. We're always staring those things in in the face. And, and you know, the, we've talked about how this is like non-linearly constructed. And I think there were a few spe- uh, specific sequences of like um, the the child version of this character, uh, just literally like staring at the camera as wartime uh, like documentary footage comes up on screen. And that was really striking. There's a lot of really great uh, editing decisions in this movie. That was sort of one specific flavor of them. Um, but yeah, like the idea of these things impacting us forwards and backwards really works for me. And it's, it's communicated harshly, um, but also very well. Um, he's right. Tarkovsky's right. Uh, IMO. Um, and uh, Harry calling back to a few things quickly that you said, um, the idea of like, our memories only being memories of a memory. Um, and also one other thing you noted about how you maybe brought more into this than uh, like the, the viewing and the conversation than you maybe should have. Um, but like after, and I'll shout it out again, last year at Marion bad, I can't help, but like approach films about memories, like going forward a specific way after watching that movie, um, the sort of memory of a mem- memory being kind of a, a semi-direct through line from that. And uh, I don't know that really that works for me here too. Um, like the ideas of uh, or the execution rather of like uh, actors playing multiple roles and you have characters fading in and out of memories um, that those sort of like support and complement that idea. It, it adds a really like realistic human flavor to these images that are like part memory and also part dream. And the sort of um, like melding of those two is, I I don't know, I think really important to understanding the experience of this character and also maybe understanding just like, yeah, how we approach our own memories and experiences. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm out of gas, but uh, I'm going to take a a sip of coffee and, and uh, take my answer off Mike. Hell yeah. King get it um yeah you all i mean i'll echo what everybody else is saying and say that uh this has been very very helpful for me um as well um just to sort of extrapolate off of what everyone was saying i think that um and and maybe again this is too much of a leap but from a formal perspective i think that tarkovsky is exploring the very thing that cody would talked about um this, this may be too broad, but I find a, a big honesty in Tarkovsky's work, especially like I've seen The Sacrifice now, and that felt like a very honest, very emotional um, sort of plea about fatherhood um, and, and fear about how he's affecting things. This feels more like a, um, a sort of like an examination of how the self permeates all perception and experience to the point where it's difficult to tell a story because the self gets in the way, right? Like I, I, I'm imagining this movie being sort of Tarkovsky's frustrations with the fact that he is bound to see things in a certain context because of who he is. And he's working through that, right? It's like, it's almost like this movie is, 
I'm trying to make a movie, but I keep getting in the way, right? Like his own perception, his own memory, his own understanding of things is so omnipresent in the way that he is perceiving and the way that he is trying to create meaning that it is it 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 has the effect of altering everything that he sees on like a you know like a quantum level where it's like when it, when observed it changes um i and and to to sort of speak to that a little bit um it in a fascinating way that that is also what is happening to me watching this movie right like i brought my experiences in um i really hate to be this guy this pretentious guy but like i just wrote a thing about this um recently about sort of like how your um your own perception sort of alters and colors the way that you experience things and i kept as i was watching this i was like i wish i had seen this when i was when i was writing that um because i it would have helped a lot i think or like at least helped contextualize some things but i think that like tarkovsky at least from the two movies i've seen right now he has this fascinating way of like using film as a means of sort of like trying to understand something or trying to like reconcile with something. I mean, both the sacrifice and mirror are textually reconciliations, right? They're about a guy at the end of his life, looking back at his life and kind of trying to like reconstruct something or kind of trying to like arrive at some sort of peace or understanding. And I think that the way that he's doing that both within the text and metatextually from the outside is by sort of reconciling with the fact that he has been present throughout all of it right that 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 the narrator of his life the sort of observer of his life is partial and has projected himself onto everything and that that is a necessary part of human experience and something that is sort of impossible to reconcile with because you are inside of it right um and so it's sort of his I think that this movie represents sort of like a frustrated attempt to understand that and in the process to understand all of the things that made him that way, um, all of the sort of like intergenerational traumas and macro historical traumas and um, relationships that were in and out of his control in the sort of deterministic sense that created this perception and then trying to like see this perception, trying to sort of like not stand outside of it, but at least confront it, right? This movie, it feels to me like a confrontation with the limitations of self, right? Um, in a, in a really profound way. Um, and I think that that's remarkably effective. Yeah. I mean, this, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to, um, you kind of don't want to like pin this movie down into like just one understanding, but if you have to sum it up, I think that ultimately this, this is a film about, you know, being at the end of your life on on your deathbed, kind of very weak, um, looking back and, and thinking about the time, um, that the movie usher said, enjoy your film. And you said you too, uh, and you felt really bad about it. Um, <laughs> but you, you come to terms with it and you feel okay about it. And then you die and you let a, you let a bird go out of your hand um i that that i will never be so absolved um i will never find absolution for all of those moments maybe that's the struggle i have with this movie she said enjoy I, your meal and i said you too do you understand no, no, i thought about that bro, every day for 37 years jason bro, almost, 
almost every phone call I get off of at work too, there's like a 70% chance that I say, bye, I love you on the way out of the call. And it's happened. <laughs> I've never done before. that once, but I would end my own life in shame if that were to ever happen. But well, not, you know my joking. emotional state then because it happens more often than you would think. And I do not think that on my deathbed, I'll be thinking, I'm at peace with that. I think I will be tormented by that uh, now and into the afterlife. Um, there is one thing that I wanted to pivot to, um, and it is <laughs> uh, embarrassingly uh, just out of a need to write a description for our last episode on the sacrifice, because we had discussed how <laughs> personal that film was to our Tarkovsky with, uh, you know, ro- looping in his um, uh, Christian upbringing and sort of his personal faith. Uh, I called it perhaps his most uh, personal film. It is clearly not um, by most metrics, uh, as especially as compared to Mirror, but it got me thinking about what it means to be a personal film, especially in the context of Tarkovsky's work. Uh, and I was able to justify to myself, and I want your guys' read on um, on a take that, yes, this is clearly a very personal film, uh, Mirror, because it is like directly autobiographical. It is pulling from me- memories and experiences that the author himself has. But previously, um, in I, I think what he's doing there is trying to make it more generally applicable to uh, pe- like to pe- help people understand his life, his, uh, you know, his experiences through his memories, where in the case of the sacrifice, he is using, um, religion, well, lots of things, but notably religion as a nexus, as a flashpoint for connecting with other, with members of the audience for like contextualizing his relationship to this thing, rather than this thing happened to me. And most people can grok the concept of being at war. Most people can grok the concept of, um, you know, making a mistake under a totalitarian regime or whatever, you know, even if they haven't experienced it, but in the case of the sacrifice, I think he's using that nexus of, um, you know, uh, again, concept of self and time, uh, and, you know, persecution with, you know, against, um, his personal faith and struggle with it to make something a little bit more uniquely vertical slice Tarkovsky. Is there anything in that take or am I just blowing smoke up and out of my own ass? Um, I like it. I think that there's maybe a case to be made that, um, that the sacrifice is a, a more pointed message and a, a message with a specific recipient, right? Like I think that Honestly, the the way I read Sacrifice increasingly is like it's a, a direct message to his son, right? And like in the process sort of like making a comment on fatherhood generally and what it means to be a father. And it's sort of an extended apologia where he's like, I'm trying to explain why I am the way I am, why I have raised you the way I raised you, and like why I hope you're going to be okay even though you are heir to these terrible emotions that I have. <laughs> and I think that – in a big way, the the mirror is kind of doing something similar, except it's a it's not it's not a message to a particular person or about a particular subject so much as it is like I think it's like it's an it's a way to be honest about what it means to make something and to sort of like see something and it's it's like Tarkovsky working using the same sort of like emotional honesty and the same sort of metatextual qualities to sort of like understand what it means to be a a person and like how 
the self gets in the way, right? Like all of the different frustrating aspects of like trying to understand and unpack memories and understand and unpack relationships um, and understand and, and unpack sort of like the ways in which all of these different things have affected and um, created you. That those are all subject to their own creation, right? And subject to their own sort of um, uh, understanding. And therefore, like, there's a great um, exchange and, and process there. And I think that um, it's like, this is a very personal movie in the sense that, like, I think that this is maybe Tarkovsky's process movie, right? Like, Tarkovsky attempting to be radically honest about where his ideas come from or the way that he perceives his own life and the way that he thinks perception of self and past works generally. But I think that there's a case to be made that sacrifice is a more constructive or directed uh, message, right? Where Mir is about people generally and himself and sort of like what it, what it all means. And the sacrifice to me is like increasingly like my son, like I don't, I don't want you to be like me. I want you to have your own life. I think, I think I've found absolution then. Uh, thank you so much, Harry. Yeah. Uh, my two cents. Um, I, I think what Harry laid out, uh, is good and, and makes sense to me. The idea, like the idea of, I mean, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot going on in both of these that could be categorized as, uh, Tarkovsky working through some shit. Um, the sacrifice being more of a pointed (laughs) thing, um, uh, and having a more like refined specific message, uh, I, I think is, is on the money. I think the, maybe the, like the mirror feels like it has more universality to it. And like, maybe the fact that like, especially through like this kind of conversation, um, like seeing that and like our, our maybe ability to imprint certain things, uh, about, uh, ourselves and our own experiences, or maybe like start to draw those through lines. And I guess this is me sort of punting, but just like, maybe that's why mirror is generally like more, not more, not, I don't know if people think like, oh, oh, mirror is better than the sacrifice, but it's certainly, I think like more widely praised and it's kind of gotten that, um, like that re recontextualization, um, that sort of reappraisal. Um, so like maybe that's where some of that comes from um and and maybe history kind of supports that uh in some ways but again that is a punt um and that is a sports reference but yeah yes we're talking yes. sports talking uh, sports my god is that sports music i think you'd have a hard time comparing <laughs> sports to this to this film yeah maybe. i'm not gonna try yeah uh, uh, uh andre Tarkovsky oh. with his mustache and it kind of looks like uh burt reynolds there's there's sure. there's something there. Okay, he, he was okay. in some football movies. That's, okay, that's something. Yeah, I said I said uh, like season one Breaking Bad, Brian Cranston. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Depending on what photo, you know, you got to get the right photo. But uh, no, I will I will kind of agree. I think with what most people are saying. So uh, a few other kind of bits of context around this film. Um, I mean, this is obviously a film that's very autobiographical. Uh, there are even elements of that that go even further. Um, Tarkovsky's mother played the the mother as an old woman uh, in kind of various scenes, but especially you know at the end of the film, um, that is Tarkovsky's mother. Uh, the reading of the poetry that was his father's poetry was read by uh, his own father, I believe, is the voiceover uh, there. Um, and also his, uh, his, his second wife was also, uh, as the, um, 
the kind of the shallow well-to-do doctor's wife uh in the film as well so it's you know it he, he's kind of inserting all of this but that is that is that is all to say that I, I i do you know it is a personal film but i think that the i think the thing trying to be done here is to get the audience member to kind of go through the same uh you know, reflective yes. process that Tarkovsky is going through. You're supposed, like I joked about, you know, about the, the thinking back to the time you messed up saying something to an usher or whatever, but like that, like coming to terms with those past feelings of guilt, I think is, is the thing here. Um, and it's not even, it's not even guilt for things that we've necessarily done wrong, but awkward uh, and, you know, impressionable moments in our life uh, that impacted us and led us to be who we are. I think coming to terms with those often things that we had kind of no hand in, right? Like, you know, when I first, at the very end of the first watch, I I thought for a minute, like, wait a minute, did Alexi like burn burn down the barn? Like, is that the point? Like he feels guilt about that. Um, But I don't think that's the point. Right. But I think that um, the barn did burn down and he was there. And even if he was not responsible, it was the source of a, a great deal of kind of, stress uh it kind of represents kind of the fraying relationships that his his parents had right um and there's a general feeling of anxiety and awkwardness around that that he's coming to terms with you know 35 years later and i think that like the viewer we're supposed to consider those own events from when we were young and kind of try and comes to terms with them in the the same manner i think that's the the thing Wow. Yeah. I, we're, we're at an hour, right? So we, we can't talk too much more, but you unlocked some new things there for me, I think. Um, I can talk so much more, Harry. I can always talk so much more. Um, specifically the idea of guilt and responsibility, right? And I keep, we keep calling this an autobiographical movie and a very personal movie, but I think that Jason, maybe the reason why it, it strikes you as less autobiographical is because it's, it's also a movie about what is, what does it mean to be autobiographical, uh, when the self doesn't exist or when the self hey. is different than we, what we thought it was, right? When you say that something is autobiographical, when you say that your perception is so, um, affected by what what created it and vice versa you're, you're saying essentially that like there is no self and the self permeates everything at once right because like you think about the fact that like this movie is also about Tarkovsky's sort of abiding guilt about um, intergenerational traumas that affected so much of the development of the people who came before him and therefore affected him right where he is heir to his parents disagreements or he is heir to um to the the frustrations that that he himself levels on his children right and it's like all of these things are things that you didn't control much like history itself but they are things that um to Aaron's point right like they they're something that affected your whole life like they they helped shape who you are right like he had nothing to do with the USSR except that he kind of did right because like it's it's a uh, a trauma that was passed down to him uh, through his parents and through other people that he is uh, like transmogrifying and passing down through his own experiences necessarily right and so there's this idea that like um all of us are coming from the same place and we're sort of like we are all different reflections of the same thing right or like the same like all of our experiences are mutable in the sense that like they are all affecting and affected by one another. Um, And so it's like, we are not isolated and like even our conflicts and when we come up against um, each other and feel isolated, there isn't 
that really, right? And I think that's kind of what the final scene epitomized to me, right? Is that they all meet in this meet in this um, this place, right? This this important area of his childhood. But like Maria sees the vision of herself as old and young, and we see the children, and we see a version of Alexi, and it's sort of like there's this this amazing sort of like transcendence, right? Where it's like, we are all united in the sense that all of the things that are affecting us as individual as they feel and seem and as sort of impossible to parse or properly contextualize in in the deterministic sense, they are all touching one another. And so we are all touching one another, right? It's like all of these memories and the emotions that they elicit and the, the traumas and that that were um, leveled against us and against the people who shaped us. We are all shaped in, the, in a sense by like this giant um, single entity of things, right? And so like, well, we, we might feel sort of isolated in that sense, we are all actually being shaped by this sort of shared experience. And so there's, there's something like really beautifully, like transcendently um, connected here to all of this in, in a very religious sense, right? In, in a sense of like being a part of something, being a part of of everything and being connected to people. At least that's kind of my ultimate takeaway, sort of building off of what we had said and building off of some, some things I had noticed earlier and especially what Aaron was saying, but I'm interested to hear um, what you've got to say now. Yeah. I mean, I was just going to say that, that, yeah, speaking specifically about that last scene, you know, I, I think that kind of going back to what I was talking about, this movie kind of leaving an impression, even if you're not able to understand it, I think that, you know, at the end of this film, even if you, um, even if it's like your first watch and you're watching it, you don't really understand like, why is there the young mother and then why is she old and why is she with the kids? Right. I think that like watching it, you know, you just kind of inherently understand um, that, that as this music is swelling and as it's the end of this film, you just like it, it impresses upon you so strongly um, that Terrence Malick stole all of this shit for tree of life, just straight <laughs> up copied it straight, straight up plagiarism. He just stole the shit. Absolutely. Even the fucking levitating scene. You know what I mean? Just copying notes from uh, Tarkovsky. Uh, I'm done. Um, yeah. Well, and, and to sort of speak to that version of both guilt and absolution, it's, it's really fascinating to think about how Tarkovsky, especially somebody with, with such a like, strong moral backbone, which we also get from the sacrifice thinking about like how, where does responsibility lie then? Right. Like, like, did he burn down the barn? Is he responsible for the barn burning because of how the effect that it had on so many people? And the answer is like profoundly yes and no. Right. Like in, in a, in a very terrifying sense, we are in some way responsible for all of the tragedies of history because they affected us and we are further affecting them. Right. But that's also true of everyone. And we are all therefore connected by these things, right? Like even the disagreements that we have, they, they stem from this thing that we are both affected by. And I think that this is like a a really like ultimately compassionate movie, right. Or a, a plea for compassion, a plea for the idea that like, all of the things that are hurting you that are hurting me or that, that we are trying to reconcile. It's something that we're all doing together, 
right? At their, and the profoundly personal is also the universal because of that. Because when I say I am personal, I am part of everything. And therefore, understanding myself is to understand everything um, in, a, in a very profound way and vice versa. Right. Even down to the concept of, of nature, you know, like the way that the wind blows, the conversations about nature, the fact that he's bleeding in the grass after that uh, near opening scene. I, I don't know. It, it, like a lot of these parts connect. But again, I think it's just going to become a theme um, for me that the movie I'm watching when I'm watching a Tarkovsky movie is a different movie from the one I will have watched when I'm done watching that Tarkovsky movie. Um, big shout outs to the Tarkovsky movie poster that is actually <laughs> in one shot of this movie. There's an Andre Rublev poster in a tracking shot of um, the main character's husband's apartment, I believe, uh, which again, whatever the self, all of that just colliding in one. Um, but this is uh, going to be the end of our actual discussion. Um, and I really hope that Cody is up to uh, to the final segment of our show because I'm going to get Harry to uh, help me introduce it. Yes, thank you, Jason. Uh, it is the segment of the show that we like to call <gasps> Cody's, Cody's Nose Morning Edition. Um, <laughs> sorry, I talked over you. You can um, give give that a clean read. Can we get a clean uh, read? Yeah, in, in post, yeah, we're getting getting a clean or, read. Or um, I, I I need Harry to help me again uh, with the with the intro, and then I'll give it the morning edition. Hit it. Sure. Do you want me to join you for that element as well, or just that? Just the first I think part. we're going to cancel each other out. Um, I'll do it, and then you do it. I'll like you. You echo me. I'll, I'll right, say the so. morning edition, and then you say edition, edition, edition. <gasps> Cody's noties morning edition. Edition, 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 edition. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for that uh, very um, reflective introduction. Uh, truthfully. Uh, shocking to everybody listening if you've made it this far i didn't know a ton about mirror going into it uh and also i needed to do some prep work in advance because the turnaround time between watching this movie and recording on it was going to be uh a pretty brief a pretty tight window so what i landed on was this today we're going to use famous sequences in movies that involve a one or more mirrors as a sort of jumping off point to ask some fun questions about those movies. Um, I know this is a, a bit of a deviation from what we normally do here, but I hope this proves to be a worthwhile challenge. Beat. Upon reflection. Upon reflection. <clears throat> In any case, uh, my evergreen disclaimer for these types of games is that I've done my best to handpick movies that we're all at least generally familiar with. Um, hopefully that won't matter too much for this. Um, uh, there are some low hanging fruits for us to, to feast upon this fine morning, which is nice. What I'll do is present each prompt one at a time. After each statement, I will ask y'all in alphabetical by first name order to respond. You'll get a point for every correct answer. And the person with the most points at the end wins as always trivia mafia rules apply here. So use your noodles, not your Googles with that. Let's jump in. Uh, starting us off here, we've got Enter the Dragon, a previous episode of ours. There's a, um, a pretty uh, famous climactic sequence that shows Bruce Lee walking through a room filled with mirrors, um, kind of searching for himself. I don't know. You could That metaphor is always around in sequences with mirrors. Um, shout outs to mirrors for being that way physically. Uh, I can't recall if we pointed this out at any time previously uh, on mic, but the actress who plays John Saxon's character's secretary is in fact marlene clark um so also, really also shout outs oh yeah 
um, she uh, allegedly said in 1998 that she was still getting royalties from Enter the Dragon, even though she only had uh, you know relatively small part. I think she was just in that like one scene. Fuck yeah! How did I never know? Oh, it's because I haven't watched uh, Enter the Dragon since seeing Hess. Exactly, exactly. Um, and now you know, dear listener, that uh, that you should go do that. Um, rewatch both of those movies, in fact. Um, but anyways, a, a quote from Clark, um, again, allegedly, and I quote, I'm still getting checks for like blank dollars. I'm not making this up. Four or five times a year, I get a check in the mail for blank dollars. I try not to spend it all in one place. And that's a quote from 1998. What I'm, uh, what I'm looking to get from you, fellas, is what dollar amount did Marlene Clark claim that she periodically received in royalties? Uh, and I can't remember if I set it up top, but I'm going to, uh, we'll go alphabetical by first name. So Aaron, starting with you, what, what is that dollar amount that Marlene Clark claimed she got periodically? $3. Royalties. That's my guess. Aaron says, Aaron says $3. Uh, Harry, what's your guess? I was going to say $3. So I'm going to say two. Sorry, Aaron. I'm going to and Jason, what you got? Don't give Jason such be- an easy. Yeah, yeah. Wow, this is going to be really easy. I'm going to go ten dollars. <laughs> oh, thank you. Okay, thank you for not just going four. <sighs> Guys, you think she had um, three to one dollars in nine in ninety eight? That movie has like had staying power. It's still considered a class. Like, I think she's getting more money than that. So I'm just erring on the well. Jason's closest, even though it's thirty five hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> right, but but four dollars would do that math anyway. Oh, in nineteen ninety eight, yeah, four dollars was like a whole page. No, I'm saying you get anything above four dollars. Yeah, it's, I there's no well, limit, non numbers, infinity. I I, do, I I just wanted to plant my flag. Okay, uh, Cody, what's the answer? I appreciate it. There's there's a lot to unpack here. We may or may not unpack all of it right now. But Clark reportedly received royalty checks for two dollars every God, few it. months. I, I will say an important addendum here for reference in 2021 dollars. That amount is actually thirty thousand um, dollars. So that's a, a decent chunk. <laughs> it's, it's a decent chunk of change. So the Clinton years. <laughs> that's right, um, presidents. Uh, next up here, so uh, Harry gets the the point for that. He nailed it. Uh, Two dollars. Here it gets the point. Next up, uh, number two, we'll take a look at Black Swan, which has uh, a few eerie sequences with mirrors as Natalie Portman's character combats the the alter ego in her mind. Um, or is it? Uh, begs the question. My question for you all, what was, uh, this is a pretty straight up question, thankfully. What was the worldwide box office intake for Black Swan during its theatrical run? Aaron? Worldwide box office. Uh... One hundred and fifty million dollars. No, well, uh, what's the best picture? Two hundred million dollars. Two hundred million dineros. Harry, that's a really good guess, Aaron. Um, I'll go one fifty. I guess one fifty. I guess and Jason, one hundred and seventy-five million dollars, baby. Damn. Um. Rounded to the nearest million, Black Swan's worldwide box office haul was $329 million. Jesus. Uh, For reference, 
Yeah, for reference, in 2021 dollars, that amount is actually $30,000. So that's a, a decent <laughs> chunk of change. Hey, um, it's inflation, real quick. bro. It's crazy. What, and, <laughs> and just, just to get angry a little bit, um, can anybody tell me what uh, the perfect blue worldwide box office was? Uh, I, I, oh, I, don't, I don't know about that one. Uh, the worldwide enough. box office for per, for uh, uh, Perfect Blue is actually uh, $579 million solely off of rentals and Blu-ray purchases by Jason Daphnis and Harry Mack. Uh, <laughs> That's just right. Solely right. Based on that. That's right. And merch. Other like merch, like posters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the poster I have hanging and the t-shirt I have in the mail. <laughs> Shoutouts to Perfect Blue merch. Coming soon to the trial of shop. Don't sue us. Um, uh, we were super wrong about that, huh? It turns out that movies don't make money unless they're fucking Marvel. Uh, no, but that's a that's a ton of money. That's a ton of money. Three hundred. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty. Uh, yeah, they yeah, that's more than, than made guess. back their their budget. I'm sure. That's a ma- I mean, I'm sure their budget oh, wait, was did like three hundred. Yeah, three hundred twenty nine million. Oh, yeah. I thought you said three. You know, what? I'm gonna look mm. it up, but I wonder what their budget actually was. My bad. Here. I don't know anything about box. It was thirteen yeah. million. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. That's a very. Big it was a. It was a. I thought a lot of people thought it was a shoe in for best picture, right? Ah, um, uh, I'm trying to think back to the time. I don't know if that's like where the like I don't know the politics of the best picture race swayed. Um, I, I think I speech one. Every, yeah. Trendy pick that, for sure. Everyone knew that um, Natalie Portman was going to win best actress. Yes, that was and she that did. was set in stone. Yeah, um, yeah, which was probably worth it. I think that movie is pretty good. Yeah. Shoutouts to Natalie Portman, come on the pod, uh, etc. We're, we're getting in all our bits here. Um, Aaron got the point for that question. For number three, we're going to take a moment to shout out uh, Aaron's favorite movie, Inception, uh, in the on, the first <laughs> in the first uh, shoutouts to Aaron in the first sort of big architect sequence. We're brought to a dream world where mirrored planes are folding in on themselves. Y'all know the scene I'm talking about. Maybe I'm not going to keep describing it and sound like a fool, but uh, this one's actually going to be a first come first serve question. So listen up and get your, your clicking hands ready. I'll I'll have my eyes on those little Zencaster hands as best I can here. Uh, Inception tied for the village voice film poll award for worst film of the year. Um, Sorry, Aaron. Uh, what film also won this award in 2010? Uh, so it tied with, with another film. What film also won this award in 2010? Keeping in mind, Aaron? I don't know if you were going to get I was just thinking like Village Voice is a little, not like pretentious, but they're, is, is it King's Speech that, that maybe won worst? Oh, I, I love the big swing, but that is incorrect. Um, that, Ooh, wow, that's that's a better film than King's Speech by quite a mile, actually. Uh, also, yes. Um, Jason, I see your hand up. I don't know if you want to venture a guess or, or throw in a quip, but the floor is yours. I, I do want to venture a guess. I'm terrible at these games, so I will just swing and say Dark Knight Rises. I don't even remember when that came out. That was 2012, so that's sadly incorrect, uh, but I, I love the big swings. This is great. 8.25 a.m. Central Time, 8.26 a.m. Central Time Energy. Um, I do have a little bit more I'll read here, um, but I see Harry's hand is up. If he wants to venture, I guess oh, no, he no. can. He, he's no, no, hand no, up. His hand is up. Hand. Yeah. Make him do it. I, I was just going to do the joke one, which is uh, the social network. Uh, the social guess. network... Yeah, that's yeah. The, that would be very funny. Uh, the social network is also incorrect. Um, I don't know what to do at this point, but other other than just the keep reading what I was going to say, I think eventually we will land upon it. But I will award no points for this question. Um, 
good 8.26 a.m. Wow. continued energy. This is incredibly uh, fair. Thank you, Cody. Yeah. Um, so uh, I was going to ask, what, what film also won this award in 2010? Keeping in mind that this is a film we have all watched via stream together. It's a title that has shown up as an answer in the noties before. I'd give you all more hints, but I don't know how much further I can... <clears throat> Killer Bean. End the rules. You can what the rules? Bend? Airbender. End. Oh, Avatar? The Airbender, indeed. Uh, yeah. Jesus wow. Christ. Fuck. The year 2010, a, a great immaculate year for film. But yeah, it, it won Village Voice's Worst Film Award along with Inception in the year 2010. Um, Should have been the King's Speech, <laughs> wow. to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Village Voice. I, I don't... You, gotta, you love this uh, deal. Yeah. <laughs> really nailed that one uh they did um none of us nailed that question um some good joke answers though um so i I think i don't know as far as soul points are concerned um everybody earned a little something there hopefully you did too dear listener we've got two more questions to go here uh we've still got a tie up top aaron and harry tied at one point apiece jason's still very much in the race here uh for number four we're going to talk about the shining which has a pretty iconic mirror scene, um, uh, throwing it back to Red Rum. In the history of its existence, The Shining has been nominated for a total of 12 awards. My question for you, fellas, is how many of those 12 were nominations for Jack Nicholson's work? Uh, Aaron, what, what's your guess? Out of 12 nominations, how many of those were nominations uh, for Jack Nicholson? Uh, I mean, it was not critically acclaimed. I thought it got nominated for a bunch of Razzies, uh, and I think one of them might be a Razzie for Jack Nicholson. I could be wrong. Uh, uh, four. Four is my guess. Four. Aaron says four. What does Harry say? I'll go with three. Harry goes with three, and Jason will go with... Oh, God. Um, two. Jason says two, and uh, honestly, uh, Jack actually received zero award nominations Whoa. for yeah. his work in The Shining, good or bad. Um, I should note, a handful of that movie's award nominations were indeed Razzie noms uh, for Duval and Kubrick. Um, kind of ridiculous. Man, wow. Fuck in retrospect, off. I fucking Much like Village Voice dude, and Inception. It's so Chris really nailed it. Uh, Why is on, everything uh, so mean to Shelley Duvall? She rules. I she she's including great. Kubrick himself. Why is yeah. Kubrick so fuck mean up, to Shelley Duvall? <laughs> and fuck off everyone who is mean to Shelley Duvall. Yes, um, fuck off indeed. Do not come on the pod or just like in my general um, Shelley Duvall periphery. Uh, you'll you'll catch some hands. Uh, I should also note, Scatman Carruthers picked up a Best Supporting Actor win from uh, what was it like the the Academy of like Fantasy, Sci-Fi, and Horror, like that sort of catch-all awards guild. Um, he won Best Supporting Actor that year, and the oh, physical yeah. meet, yeah, uh, pre- pretty cool. The physical media releases also um, for The Shining for some reason got a lot of praise in the mid 2010s. So like a handful of awards they were nominated for came from that. Um, shoutouts to physical media. Um, real ones uh but we've got one last question here we're all tied up one point apiece because jason got that last point uh uh, the last kind of mirror movie on the docket here is taxi driver of course there's the famous uh uh you know you talking to me scene um scholars across the globe refer to this as the apex of cinematic mirrors or at least they probably do um copyright trial of podcast 2021 the titular taxi driver 
is named Travis Bickle and is portrayed by uh, famed actor Robert De Niro. My question for you folks is, what is the difference in age between how old the character Travis Bickle is supposed to be in the movie and the age of De Niro in the year of the film's release? <laughs> what, is, what is the difference in age between those two people, Aaron, in years? Uh, did you say what exact year that it was released, or did you not give us that info? I did not give you that information. Okay. Um, noodles, not Googles. Uh, no, no, I know. Um, I'm just, yeah, just making sure. Let's see here. He's supposed to be a veteran. Um, I'm going to go... Uh, four, 14. 14, says Aaron. Harry, what you got? I'm going to do... Um, 14 is a pretty good guess. I'm going to do 19, I guess. Um, that might be too high. We'll see. Harry says 19. And Jason, what do you got? I'm going to go 7. Jason says 7. Um, so maybe they say this in the movie at some point. I don't really remember. It's been a while since I've seen Taxi Driver. But according to Wikipedia, at least, Travis Bickle, uh, the character, is 26 years old uh, in, in the in the movie, during the events of the movie. In the year 1976, when Taxi Driver was released, Robert De Niro turned 33 years of age, making for an age difference of seven years between actor and character. Uh, Jason uh, Daphnis clutching yeah, this one. I'm thinking that's a sweep. I think that's a, um, I think that's just I win the game, right? Literally not a sweep, but you did well, win. This is how he wins. Got two points and the rest of us got one point. It's all right, it's Jason. Definitely you not a sweep. At math. Um, uh, I, I got a net on this one, guys. Nothing but net. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, if you want to pop off a little more, absolutely feel free to. I will just say great work, everyone. Even if you didn't do as well as you'd have liked, hopefully you'll eventually feel better about your performance beat upon reflection. I was going to uh, play the, uh, uh, the, you know, the the, the Ric Flair, one limousine ride and jet flying son of a gun speech. <laughs> uh, I was going to play that if I won He's or stealing. even if I tied one. Yeah, I was oh, going to play that boy. whole 45 second clip, but now I can't. So, Jason, why don't you think about that? You know? Yeah, well, try harder next time. Uh, thank you very much for listening to Try Love, a literal roundtable podcast. Uh, this has been our episode about Mirror playing at the trial on, um, and I believe it's also... Uh, across the internet i watched it um on my computer for what that's worth uh tune in next week for another episode um geez it it has been a whole cup of coffee and an hour and a half since we started this and i am still not quite ready to outro it uh but you can find us on twitter at trial of podcast you can find the trial on at trial on cinema my name is jason and you can find me at nintendoofus i've been cody narvison you can find me on twitter at cody underscore bh Congratulations, Jason. Um, it had to happen sometime, and I'm, I'm glad it happened to such a spirited competitor as yourself. Um, I, I appreciate the games upon reflection. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. My name is Harry. You already know what my name is. Uh, yeah, congrats. Congrats, Jason. It's, it's nice to get, you know, spread around the little taste of victory to everybody, even those that, that maybe, you know, participation trophy is usually what they're usually what they're getting but uh, uh my name is aaron you can find me on twitter at rb please it seems to make me return to the place poignantly dear to my heart where my grandfather's house used to be in which i was born 40 years ago right on the dinner table each time i try to enter it something prevents me from doing that i see this dream again and again 
And when I see those walls made of logs and the dark entrance, even in my dream, I become aware that I'm only dreaming it. And the overwhelming joy is clouded by anticipation of awakening. At times, something happens and I stop dreaming of the house and the pine trees of my childhood around it. Then I get depressed and I can't wait to see this dream in which I'll be a child again and feel happy again because everything will still be ahead. Everything will be possible. <laughs> 